So welcome everyone, good evening. Um, welcome to Congregation Bet Tefila. It's uh, truly always a pleasure and a privilege to partner with Valley Bet Midrash and uh, to host such uh, enriching evenings for all of us. Um, beyond the welcome and beyond the gratitude to Valley Bet Midrash, I also want to say how honored and privileged we are to have Arthur Kurzweil with us, a dear friend and uh, truly a special man. Um, we have uh, many things in common, but I think the most profound is that we are both students of uh, our beloved rabbi, Adin Steinsaltz, uh, the world scholar. And I will um, just say this, that great leaders become leaders because we believe in them. But the greatest of the great, great become leaders because they believe in us. Rabbi Steinsaltz, I consider is the greatest of the great. And he believed in us, but he believed in particularly uh, Arthur Kurzweil. And beyond the fact that he believes in us, he believed in Arthur Kurzweil for very, very good reasons, as you'll see tonight. Thank you, and I'll pass it over to Rob Shmuley. It's always a pleasure to be with uh, Beth Tefila and Rabbi Alush. So we're really in for a very special treat tonight. Rabbi Arthur Kurzweil is a world-renowned educator, editor, writer, publisher, and illusionist. A native of New York City, Rabbi Kurzweil earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Hofstra University and a Master's of, li of Library Science from Florida State University. A respected scholar and, gr and guest speaker who has appeared at Jewish organizations and synagogues throughout the US and world. Rabbi Kurzweil's life's work has been focused around helping others discover their Jewish heritage. He has done this through writing many books on numerous topics, including Torah thought, genealogical research, and the subject of tonight's talk, Kabbalah. During his 17-year tenure at Jason Aronson Publishers, Rabbi Kurzweil commissioned and published over 650 books on Jewish topics. It's a massive number. He has also been editor-in-chief of the Jewish Book Club, president of the Jewish Book Council, and an editorial consultant for Jossie Bass. Is that how you pronounce it? Jossie Bass? Rabbi Kurzweil's book, From Generation to Generation, How to Trace Your Jewish Ge Genealogy and Family History, is considered to be a definitive introductory guide on the topic. Rabbi Kurzweil all, has also authored two books in the Four Dummies series, uh, Kabbalah for Dummies and the Torah for Dummies. Some of his other titles include On the Road with Rabbi Steinzoltz, as was mentioned, The Encyclopedia of Jewish Genealogy, and My Generations, A Course in Jewish Family History, which is commonly used as a textbook at synagogue schools all over the, all, all over the US. Having spent uh, much time with Rabbi Kurzweil today, I can say that on a personal level, he is delightful and insightful and just a fascinating person. Please join me in welcoming our guest tonight, Rabbi Arthur Kurzweil. Good evening. The first thing I would like to say is that you should please feel free to leave as soon as you want. <laughs> uh, uh, often, often when people come to a, a lecture or a class, they feel that if they leave, they're going to hurt the feelings of the, of the teacher or, or, or the speaker. No, don't, don't worry about the, the ego of the person who is speaking. Um, you can feel free to, to come and go as you please. You can stay for five minutes and leave and, and, and not come back. 
If, if you leave after five minutes and don't come back, I'm just going to assume that there were, that was such an extraordinary five minutes <laughs> that that's all you really needed and you were, you were all filled up. So, so my, my goal is to clear the room as quickly as I possibly can. <laughs> Um, it's, it, it's, it, it's true that, that uh, um, I am a, a devoted student of Rabbi Steinzaltz. Um, for those of you who know Rabbi Steinzaltz, I don't have to tell you it, uh, anything. For those of you who don't, let me just say quickly that Rabbi Steinzaltz, among other things, has done something that has not been done in a thousand years. It isn't since Rashi, who was b born around the year 1000, that any single individual has written a comprehensive commentary on the entire Babylonian Talmud. Not only has he done it, but it's considered a work of genius by, by people far, far greater than you and me. Uh, but, but that's only one of the many things that Rabbi Steinzaltz has done, and I w would like to say that just about everything, if not everything I know about the topic this evening, I, I know from Rabbi Steinzaltz. In the, in the early 1980s, actually it was in the late 1970s that I read an essay that Rabbi Steinzaltz wrote it was my first encounter with uh, his work, and I read this essay, and I felt as though it said, Dear Arthur. It was just speaking just right to me. And um, I, I, I was blown away by this essay. I wrote him a letter, and in the letter I said, if you ever come to New York, he was born and he lives in Jerusalem, if you ever come to New York, I would love to meet you. Well, uh, a year went by, I didn't hear from him, and then one morning the phone rings, and it was a woman who's has an office in New York City, and she said to me, Rabbi Steinzaltz is gonna be in New York next week. How's Wednesday at 10? <laughs> you know, so I said, Wednesday at 10 is just fine. And from that moment until Wednesday at 10, I sat down to think of what were the biggest questions in my life? What were the biggest questions I could um, possibly th think of? And I, I came up with 11 questions. I met with Rabbi Steinzaltz, and that day we spent about three hours together, and we got to nine out of the 11 questions. So, so I did very, very well. A couple of years later, I called the same woman who has an office in Manhattan, and she coordinates the rabbi's trips to the United States. And I, I, I said to, to, to the woman, I want to work for Rabbi Steinzaltz. Do you have a job for me? I said to her, I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking um, for any big position. I, I just want to be able to put my head on the pillow at the end of the day and say to myself, I helped Rabbi Steinzaltz in his work. <coughs> Rabbi Steinzaltz's motto is, let my people know. <laughs> you know it's not just a, a, a cute twist on a familiar phrase. It's, it's really a prescription. Let my so I said to the woman, I want to work for Rabbi Steinzaltz. Do you have a job for me? And she said, well, um, what can you do? And I said, I'll, I'll do anything you want. Do you give me any job? I just want to work for the rabbi. She said, well, that's very nice, but what can you do? If you, if you give me a little bit of a sense of your skills, maybe I can find something for you. The woman said to me, uh, so I said to the woman, look, I don't care what you give me. I'll do anything that you want. Give me the junkiest job you have. If you want, I'll, I'll pick, pick him up at 5 o'clock in the morning at the airport. And the woman said to me, you will? <laughs> and from that day until just a few days ago, the rabbi happens to be in New York right now, it isn't 5 o'clock, it's 6 o'clock when El Al flight number one comes from Israel to JFK airport. So it really means that I spend more time with the rabbi when he's in New York than anybody because I love rush hour traffic when Rabbi Steinfeld <laughs> is in my car. You know, I can't get there slowly enough. Um, 
And, and over the years, I've been asking him all of my big and big and sometimes little, but mostly big questions. And and so far, he hasn't thrown me out. Uh, and so we, we've established a, a, a nice relationship, and uh, it's been an extraordinary experience. I'm a very a very lucky guy. But I, the 20 ideas that I want to talk about this evening, I want. Uh, the title is um, 20, uh, 20 Profound Lessons. I'm reading it from here. Um, that's a nice picture of me, actually. Um, uh, 20 Profound Lessons from Kabbalah that I made sure to teach my children. Well, I want you to know that I made sure to clear this with my children. I, I, I wanted to make sure that my, my children would agree with me that these were 20 things that I indeed uh, communicated to them and, and instilled within them. Years ago, uh, I was with Rabbi Steinzeltz in New York. It was a Friday afternoon, and, and it was kind of late in the afternoon. And the rabbi kept saying to me, you know, I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and this was in Manhattan, and he said, you know, you better get going. Shabbos is coming. And, and I said to him, okay, I, I, I'll, I'll go, but I, I have, can I ask you just one more qu quick question? He said, okay, what's the question? I said, how do you raise children? <laughs> How do you raise children? I, you know, it was a small question. So, so he, he said to me something that became the, the guide for, for my raising my children. He said to me, teach your children the most abstract theological notions that you can teach them. He said, don't dumb it down. Don't dumb it down. Go, go as high as you possibly can, as young, as young, as young as they are. And, and it, it became really a, a wonderful piece of advice. And over the years, my children are now in their late 20s, early 30s, we've been speaking about these ideas all of their lives. Um, I, you know, if you, if you say, say some of these things to, to grown-ups, to adults, I'm sure you're gonna have lots of problems with, with lots of these things. But my children didn't have problems with any of them, and they it, it were integrated into them, and my children and I, we taught, I don't like small talk, I like big talk. And, and, and all their lives, we've been talking big talk. So let me, let me get to the 20. Number one. Number one is that we already know all of this. You already know everything that I'm gonna talk about tonight. You already know all of it. The Talmud reminds us of this notion by the little notch under the nose. You know, we all have this little notch under our nose, it's called a filtrum. And just, everybody has it, except for Tom Brokaw. <laughs> Next time, take a look when he's on, and tell me if I'm right, that I don't see a filter on Tom Brokaw. But, but the, the rabbis in the Talmud say, what, was the soul, what is the soul doing before it's put into the baby, before it's born? And the Talmud says, it's, it's sitting and it's learning Torah. And then when the baby comes out, uh, 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 at the time the baby comes out, an angel slaps it on the, uh, on, uh, on the mouth, kind of to jolt it into the new dimension that the baby is coming into, and the slap on the mouth does two things. Number one, it creates that little filtrum, and number two, it, the effect is that the baby forgets all of the Torah that it had learned. So that learning is not learning things that are new, but remembering things that we already knew. Learning is a process of, uh, an inner process of looking inward and recalling things. 
something, something sounds true. Why does it, you know, why does it sound true? It's because you already knew it. And, and, and it's just a reminder of it. So we already knew all of this. So the next 19 are, wait, let me try to remind you of what we already know. Number two, some people believe that we're just a body. You're born, you live, you die. That's it. All we are is a body. We're born, we live, we die. I remember in high school in biology textbook, they even told you how much you're worth. You know, magnesium, a couple of pennies. And, uh, and then you added it up and you were $14 and change. And that's, that's, so some people believe that you're a body. That's it. Well, there are people who don't say well, we're just a body. We're a body that has a soul. A body that has a soul. Jewish tradition does not prescribe to either of these two notions. Our sages do not teach us that we're a body. And our sages do not teach us that we're a body that has a soul. Our notion is that we're a soul that has a body. The soul existed before this particular body. The soul picks up this body and uses it as an instrument for 70 years, plus or minus. The soul then drops the body, and, and, and it goes on. We're not just a body. We're not a body that has a soul. We're, we're a soul that has a body. Number three, every chapter of the 13 petaled rose, Rabbi Steinzaltz's basic introduction to Judaism, basic Kabbalistic introduction to Judaism. It's a small book. It's 180 pages. And, and the margins are big, and the letting between the lines are also pretty wide. It's a pretty brief book. But in the book, Rabbi Steinzaltz is not interested in history. He's not interested in teaching us about the holidays or, or uh, immigration to America or, or custom, Jewish customs. The rabbi is trying to write what are the abstract theological ideas that hold up all of Judaism? What are those basic abstract ideas? And in the book, you would see that almost every chapter says that the topic of this chapter is impossible to understand. So there's a chapter called Torah. And in the chapter called Torah, right at the beginning, the rabbi says, there's no way to, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to define Torah. There's a chapter called the soul. In the chapter called the soul, Rabbi Sandel says, there's no way to conceive of the soul. There's a chapter in the book called holiness. Rabbi Sandel says, there's no way to define or understand holiness. So just about every chapter, he has topics, and he tells you that's impossible to understand. But the secret of it is that acknowledging that it's impossible to understand is a giant step in the direction of beginning to understand it. That's the secret of it. That if you acknowledge that this is impossible to grasp, that becomes the doorway in. You know, Maimonides, in his 14 books of, the, of, of Jewish law, the, the Mishnah Torah, at the very the, the beginning of all 14 books, the Rambam, Maimonides says, um, talks about, about God and talks about contemplating God and says, when you contemplate and think and meditate on, on God and, and, and you think you have it, the first thing you have to do is throw it out because you don't have it. If you had it, then you wouldn't understand it because God is impossible to understand or to grasp on any, by any means. Uh, there's no, by definition. And that, but, but you go back and you think and you ponder and you question and you meditate and you meditate and you meditate and you think you're, you're, you're beginning to understand something. And my mind says, what do you do? 
when you think you understand something, you throw it out. And, and because you don't understand it, because it's, it's impossible. It's beyond our reach and beyond our grasp. And then once again, you're going, so, the, so another one of the secrets is, is that we have to acknowledge that we can't understand it. And that knowledge becomes the doorway into a beginning to, to, to understand it. it. It works. Number four. Keep me, keep, thank you. I, I, I have a lot of friends in the room tonight. Uh, I, have, I, I actually have some relatives in, in the room tonight. In fact, um, I um, probably we're all relatives if you go bar, far back, uh, back enough. Um, but uh, I don't know about you, but I, uh, uh, when, I, when I was doing my genealogical research, there was one po I, I was doing genealogy, and at one point I discovered, I felt that I had more in common with my dead ancestors than I did with my living relatives. <laughs> and they were also so much easier to get along with. Okay? You know, so so um, I see a few of you have similar relatives to me, um, present company excluded, of course. Uh, but but the next number, we don't have a notion in Jewish tradition that God created the world. Even when you read that first line in the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, we don't have a notion that God created the world. It's not part of our theology. It's not, there's not a, a, a sage in the long span of Jewish history that has ever taught that God created the world. Rather, God creates the world. God is constantly creating and sustaining the world. And th this is where I get into a, a debate with Rabbi Harold Kushner. Because Rabbi Kushner wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Uh, and by the way, I want to say that I I've known Rabbi Kushner since I'm a little boy. I, uh, our families knew each other. In fact, his late father, in his will, gave me my first, my first volumes of Talmud. So I've known him for a long, long time. So nothing that I'm saying is, something, is anything that I haven't said to Harold Kushner himself. But, Rabbi Kushner says that, I don't believe, he said, that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. This is the essence of his book. He said, I don't believe that God is all-knowing and all-powerful, because if he was all-knowing and all-powerful, then he wouldn't let bad things happen to good people. So therefore, Harold Kushner says, God is all-knowing, but not all-powerful. In fact, there's a chapter in the book called God Can't Do Everything. And wait a second, I was taught that God is beyond the, God, we don't limit God in any way, but this is a, the, a, a theological position, that God can't do everything. Maybe you remember um, Inherit the Wind. Remember the film Inherit the Wind? It was uh, Spencer Tracy and, and Frederick March. So, so Frederick March is on the witness stand and Spencer Tracy says to, to, to Frederick March's character, if God created the world in six days, uh, what has he been doing since then? Did, did he move to another county? Uh, Spencer Tracy delivered that much better than I just did. But, but that's a theological notion, that God created the world and left it alone to do what it does. Our sages teach, no, God continues to create and sustain the world it's as though, as one of the sages put it, as though if you were to turn, if God were to turn and look the other way for a moment, everything would disappear. God sustains and creates the world constantly. The Talmud says not a blade of grass moves without God willing it to move. 
that not, not, a, not a, a leaf flows back, uh, rocks back and forth without God allowing it to happen. Now, the implication of that notion is terrifying. Right? We don't have to talk about six million Jews being murdered, and one innocent child is enough for me to, to, to say, what, God creates the world? He's just, he, he didn't leave it alone to, for us to do good, uh, or what, that, that he's involved in, uh, in, in everything constantly? We'll get back to it, but that's the notion, that God is constantly sustaining the world. It is not that he created the world and left it, but that it's a constant flow of divine, divine creation that is continuing to create and to sustain the world. Again, we'll come back to that because we have to talk about that a little bit more. But the next, ne ne next number, five. The false analogy when trying to conceive of the divine, when trying to comprehend and grasp the almighty, the false analogy is that God is the CEO of the universe. Because imagine for a moment the, the, the CEO of, of General Motors. Do you think that the CEO in General, in General, General Motors cares what the secretary to the uh, assistant manager of the local General Motors dealership is doing? I, I suspect not. I suspect that the CEO of General Motors has other things to deal with than the secretary of the assistant manager of the local General Motors dealership. That's why it's a false analogy, that God is not the CEO of the universe. It isn't as though I think, can think to myself, doesn't God have better things to do than to think about Arthur Kurzweil and what he does and doesn't do? Isn't, you know, I have this pet peeve um, about newspapers. Uh, I had a college professor who put it very nicely. My, my history professor in college came into class one mor morning and he said I, to the class, I'm no longer reading the New York Times, I'm just reading the Wall Street Journal. And he said, I'll explain why. He said, I bought this morning a copy of the Times and a copy of the Wall Street Journal. And as everybody knows, every journalist, journalism student certainly knows the most important uh, story on page one is in the upper right-hand corner of the, of the newspaper. So he, he looked at the New York Times and he said, so what's the most important story of the New York Times this morning? And it was a story about Spiro Agnew. <laughs> uh, Spiro Agnew. Uh, he was the vice president of the United States. Uh, he said, now let's take a look at the Wall Street Journal and see what the most important story this morning is. And he goes to the upper right corner and he says, it's a story about hemorrhoids. <laughs> and the professor says, as everybody knows, Spiro Agnew is going to come and go. But hemorrhoids are here to stay. <laughs> so there's sometimes, there's sometimes when I see in the New York Times, on page 48, there's a tiny little article uh, in the Times, and it says, new cluster of galaxies discovered. New, a, a galaxy has billions of stars. This is a cluster of galaxies. I think it should be the, the headline of the newspaper. The new cluster of galaxies. So you know, what's big and what's small? When it comes to our relationship with the divine, there's no big and small. The number one and the number a million is the same size in relationship to the infinite. So while the CEO of a, of a, a big company might not be involved with every detail of the company, 
God is not the CEO of the universe because God is infinite, infinite to the infinite power, so that there's nothing that's big and small. There's nothing that, that, that God finds too unimportant, according to our sages. He's, uh, that, that's why it's a false analogy. Number six, there's a field of mathematics in geometry that's not plane geometry, which is what you learn in high school, but it's a three-dimensional geometry having to do with, with vectors and cones and the movement of, 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 of these angles. And there's a theorem in that field of geometry that's called Desarge's theorem. Desarge's theorem. Uh, you could look it up, uh, look it up in Wikipedia or any place, and you'll see that it's a relatively easy theorem to understand. A school child can understand Desarge's theorem. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not complex at all. But the problem with Desarge's theorem is that you can't prove it. As simple as it is, as clear as it is to a child, Desarge's theorem cannot be proven until. You imagine a point in the infinite. And when you imagine a point in the infinite and then try to prove the Sarge's theorem, then the theorem can be proven very, very, very quickly. And, and that is what Rabbi Steinzeld says is faith. Faith is inviting the infinite into your equation. Without the infinite, you'd have all kinds of crazy ideas and puzzles and dilemmas. But like the Sarge's theorem, where we, we imagine the infinite, what we do is we imagine the infinite beyond infinite beyond infinite. You know, this might sound peculiar to you, but if there's a mathematician in the room, you'll verify it for me. There are different size infinities. Now, how could it be? Infinity is forever and ever. How could it be different size infinities? But you know, the number of, the, the number of even numbers, two, four, six, eight, ten, that's an infinite set of numbers. The number of points on this line is an infinite number of points. Because wherever you put a point, you're gonna, two points, you can always stick another point in the middle. Well, mathematically, it can be proven easily that the number of points on this line is a, it's counterintuitive, is a larger set of infinity than the um, number of even numbers. Now, you'd think it would be the opposite, because two, four, six, eight, you can always add another one. Whereas this, it's a, a finite line. But mathematically, there are more, this is a larger number, a larger infinite set than the set, for example, of even, of even numbers. By the way, do you know what the symbol of infinity is in mathematics? You might think it's the, 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 the eight on its side. That's not, that's the, that's the sign for infinity in science. The sign for infinity in, in, in mathematics is the Hebrew letter Aleph. The Hebrew letter Aleph is the way mathematicians, Jewish and non-Jewish, will indicate a, a set of infinity. And there's one set of infinity that's Aleph by itself. Another set of infinity that's Aleph, it's called Aleph one. Uh, and there's an Aleph zero, Aleph null it's called. So there are different size infinities, but when it, pardon me, when it comes to, 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 uh, to the divine, when it comes to to um, our relationship with the Almighty, God is infinite to the infinite power. God is, because the set, of the set of even numbers is infinite in its size, but there's one thing about the set of even numbers that's not infinite. 
and that's that they're numbers. They're something. They're something. But the set of but the set of set of odd numbers. All these are infinite, perhaps in their size, but not in the fact that they're things that that, that you're counting or trying to ma imagine. When it comes to the Almighty, God is infinite to the infinite power. There's nothing we can say about God. There's, it's be, beyond anything we can po po possibly, possibly com comprehend. So Dessage's theorem as an analogy is number six. Number seven. Now this is, the, this is gonna be the toughest one. This is the toughest one, and we're gonna come back to it at the end. Because when, when I finally close up to this evening, I'm gonna tell you um, I'm going to hopefully tell you the most profound story that I've ever heard. Uh, the most profound story. Now, if, to say that, it better be good. Uh, um, but I'm telling you, it's the most profound story I've ever heard. But here, but, but, but here at number seven, in it, it's a building on what we were just speaking about. In relationship to God, everything is the same proportion. Like we said a moment ago, number one, and number a million is the same size in relationship to the infinite. So let me read you a small passage from the 13 petaled rose. Abbas Tandelts writes, precisely because the divine is apprehended as an infinite, not a finite force, everything in the cosmos, whether small or large, is only a small part of the pattern so that there is no difference in weight or gravity between any one part and another. The movement of a man's finger is as important or unimportant as the most terrible catastrophe. For as against the infinite, both are of the same dimension. So I, I could just say, tonight and go, and go home. I mean, that, that's enough, but just sit with that for a while. Uh, our sages have been sitting with that for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so have my children. <laughs> but that's the notion. The notion is that there's no large or small in relationship to God. There's no large or small. N next number, number eight. This is an important one, uh, certainly for me. According to Jewish tradition, there's no such thing as down. Every descent is for the sake of ascension. Every descent is for the sake of ascension. If you've been to an amusement park and gone on the roller coaster, you know that to be true. How does the roller coaster get way up? It's got to come way down, and then it goes down, and then it comes up. So that every down in a human experience, according to our sages, is not down. It's simply a descent for the sake of ascension. There's even, uh, in the Hasidic world, there's, there, there's a, a, a chant. Uh, it's just over and over again, the descent for the sake of ascension, the descent for the sake of ascension. So that when you fall down and you pick yourself up, you have something that you didn't have before you fell, fell down. What do you have? You have the knowledge that you can pick yourself up. So suddenly it's not just a descent. It's a descent for the sake of ascension. Don't, don't, don't most of us, if not all of us, know this to be true in our lives? That something happens that's terrible. 
Something happens that you wouldn't want to happen again, that you wouldn't wish on your enemies. But you discover that around the corner from it is something glorious that you never would have encountered had that terrible thing not happened. So many of us have those moments. You, would, you don't want to wish it to happen. You don't celebrate that it happened. But you see that every descent is for the sake of ascension. Every descent is for the sake uh, of ascension. Number nine. Rabbi Steinsaltz teaches, the sages teach, that every detail of the human body, down to its most minute detail, every detail of the human body is divine revelation. We already talked about the philtrum and what that reveals to us. Every detail of the human body is divine revelation to the point where, as Rabbi Steinsaltz teaches, you could just examine your body in its detail and discover the entire Torah. So he says, you can discover the, you know, um, George Harrison of the Beatles wrote a song that did not get onto any album. It was a, the B-side of eight days a week, if you really want to know. But, it, but, but the, the notion that he wrote is that it was called, the name of the song is The Inner Light. The farther one travels, the less one knows. That you, as Rabbi Sanjals puts it, sometimes, you know, I, I, I've apologized to my children so many times for sending them to school. Because I, mean, I hated school. And then I sent them to, to the same thing that I hated. Because, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing. But, but I, what I, as, as Rabbi Sanjals puts it, you get filled up with heaps and heaps of unrelated facts, which tend sometimes to obscure reality rather than clarify reality. Heaps and heaps of un unrelated facts. So, but, so you know, one doesn't have to go far. We, we, you can look at, at your, your, within yourself and every detail of the human body. By the way, why do we have earlobes? We have earlobes so that if somebody is speaking gossip, you can take the earlobes and stick them in your ears so you don't have to hear them. <laughs> uh, that's from the, uh, from the Talmud. Every, every detail of the human body is divine revelation. The, the, we were talking about, um, about, about books before. Um, Aaron and I were talking about books before. And uh, when I, my office was in northern New Jersey, across the George Washington Bridge in New Jersey. And I was living in Brooklyn. And every day when I drove home down the West Side Highway, by the way, I was there yesterday, no, two days ago, on the West Side Highway, and at Pier 40, if you look up, there's a school of trapeze. And, the, and, and it was wonderful just to watch these, these people learning the, trape the trapeze. But I used to drive down the West Side Highway and then to, to where the uh, World Trade Towers used to be and into the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. And every afternoon or early evening when I drove back home, there was always some, some Orthodox guys from Brooklyn who would be looking for somebody who looked like me to wave them down to get a free ride through, through the tunnel and into Brooklyn. So every day I would see, uh, see these people, and my rule was always the same. I said to them, if you want to talk Torah, come sit up front. If you want to talk business, sit in the back. I don't want to talk business. So every day I would, I would pick these people up, every, almost every day. And one day I picked up this guy, and I told him my rule. If you want to talk Torah, sit in the front. And if you, so he sat in the front, and he said to me, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> And I 
said, well, I'm, I have published Jewish books, but I, I really don't want to talk about it. If you want to talk business, you can take a nap in the back. And, but if you want to sit up front, let's talk Torah. Let's talk about the Torah portion of the week or something. And he said, um, oh, you publish books? Um, uh, you know, where's your office and what is it? You know, and I, I told him, and I, so as we're driving back to Brooklyn, he said to me, you know, my father-in-law recently lost his wife. And he's depressed. He's a great translator. Here's his name and address and his phone number. If you ever have any translation work for him, well, give him a call. And I, I, he, I took the, the phone number, and I never called him. I never called his father-in-law. I didn't have anything for him. Well, about a month or two later, I pick up the same son-in-law. I, I didn't recognize him. To me, they all look alike. But he comes into my, my car, and he, I didn't he said to me, Kurzweil, you never called my father-in-law. I said, you know, I, I just didn't have any, any work, for, he, work for him. He said, look, if you have, please, he's, he's depressed, and it would be so good for him to do some translation. He's great from Hebrew into English. Uh, I said to him, you know, I still have his phone number. I put it into my little jar on my desk. I still have it. He said, give him a call. And I dropped the guy off, and I, I never called the father-in-law. So um, a couple of months go by, I pick up the same darn son-in-law. And, he, and he, he gets into the car, and he says, Kurzweil, you never spoke to, never called my father-in-law. And I said to him, look, call your father-in-law tonight and tell him that tomorrow morning I'm going to call him. Figuring that if I said that to him, I would live up to my promise, and the next morning I'd call him, and I'd finally tell the father-in-law that I have nothing for him. But I'd at least get him off my... So, but the next morning, I had a thought. And I called the father-in-law and I said to him, what I'd like you to do is give me a list of 25 Torah commentators. And then pick out one of them and, and write a biography, like a paragraph biography of that particular Torah commentator. And then find a couple of teachings, you know, nice little fortune cookie teachings, not technical stuff, but nice little pieces of Torah, little pieces of wisdom. Just a couple that, of them that that so a couple of days later, I get the 25 list in the mail, and um, uh, one of them with the biography and a couple of pieces of talk. And that book became, that, that page became the basis of a book that I published by this man called The Great Torah Commentators. After he finished that book, he said, what should I do now? <laughs> and I said, well, you did it for all the Torah commentators. Do it for all the great Hasidic masters. And that became a book that I published called The Great Hasidic Masters. He finished that book and he said, well, what should I do now? And I said, well, the Hasidic masters were all the ones who were not alive. Why don't you do a second volume of the, of the Rebbes who are, are, are still with us? And, and that became uh, uh, the, his third book called A Great Contemporary Masters. After that, he said, what should I do next? And we did seven books together. Wow. This, uh, the seventh book, and this is the reason I, saw, uh, I, I think of it, it was a book called In My Flesh I See God which is a quote from the book of Job, and one of the most popular quotes in all the Kabbalistic books, in my flesh I see God. And what I asked this man to do is, I said, go through the Talmud. You know, the, the great sages in the Talmud, they, they, um, they often use body metaphors, metaphors from the body to teach. So why don't you look for those body metaphors and organize it by body part? And he did that, and it became a book that, w that I published called In My Flesh I See God. And there's a chapter on elbows, and a chapter on ears, and nose, and mouth, and so forth. So I mean, the big lesson for me is that, is that um, you never know what's going to happen, right? That here's this pain in the neck son-in-law. 
But finally, he be, his father-in-law became an author of, the, of these really wonderful, wonder, wonderful books. So the, the notion is that every detail of the human body is divine revelation. Number, number 10, better go a little more quickly here. Number 10, number 10 I call timing and dosage. Every pharmacist knows that a medicine can be a poison depending on timing and dosage. And this is the theological idea, very important theological idea in Judaism. We do not have in Jewish tradition a hierarchy of emotions. We, unlike some of our neighbors, don't say love is the great emotion on the top of the list. Rather, our tradition represents the approach that all of the emotions, all of what Rabbi Seinfeld calls the potentialities of the heart, all are on the same level and are good and bad, not by what they are intrinsically, but how they're used. Sometimes love is exactly the wrong emotion for the situation. Sometimes hate is exactly what the situation calls for. We don't have a hierarchy of emotions. Rather, all of the emotions, as creations of God, are tools that we can use or we can abuse. Nothing is better or worse. It's all on um, how you use it. That's the notion, very different notion than, than that this emotion is better than that emotion. They're all on the same level, and they're good or bad, not by what they are intrinsically, but rather by how they're used or abused. So one day I'm, I'm driving to Rabbi Seinfeld in New York, and um, I'm thinking about this idea, and I said to Rabbi Seinfeld, you know, um, you say that all of the emotions are uh, not good or bad intrinsically, but how they're used. So I said, Rabbi, um, what's good about heresy? I thought it was a good question, right? Well, what, what's good about heresy? And in a second, Rabbi said to me, well, you know, it's like you're walking down the street and you see somebody, a, a, a beggar who's asking for spare change. You might look at that beggar and say to yourself, you know, God takes care of everybody, so I, I can just walk by. He said, sometimes you have to muster up a little bit of heresy, a little bit of non-belief, a little bit of thinking, you know, God doesn't take care of everybody, and that's what prompts you to be the one who gives a donation to the person. That even heresy, at some times, in some contexts, can have the can have the, the right uh, the right the, the right timing and the right dosage. Number eleven. Despair is an essential part of tshuva of change. Despair is an essential part of of one's wanting to change. Despair is essential. So in other words, the next time you feel despair, don't despair. Because despair is an essential part of your desire, of, of the process of change. In fact, it's the despair that creates the energy that allows you to have the power to overleap your past, to change what you want to change. That despair is not something to avoid. Sometimes you feel despair, and that despair is the, the vehicle, the, the energy through which the change becomes possible. Again, to say it in other words, like we said before, a descent for the sake of ascension. Despair is an essential. Number 12. When you ask yourself the question, what, what, what am I doing? What, what's my life about? Who, who am I? What, what should I be doing? 
What's it? That is not you asking yourself the question. According to our Savior, when I say to myself, who am I? This is God asking me the question. The same question that God asks Adam in that, in that story. Where, where are you? Who are you? That when you ask, when you, when you feel like you're lost, and you ask yourself, who am I? That's a very, very high level of spirituality. It's a very high level, according to our sages, to, ask, to be lost and to ask, who am I, is a high, because what you're actually doing is you're hearing God's voice, that's not your voice, that's the voice of God asking you the question that you might be afraid to ask. But you ask it, and, and that becomes a high level of spirituality. You're actually hearing God's voice when you have that inner, that inner turmoil. Number 13, this is just a real quick one, so, so just one sentence. Rabbi Steindorf teaches it often. If you think you've arrived, you're lost. <laughs> if you think you've arrived, you're lost. That it's, an end, it's endless, it's endless. When you think you've arrived, you haven't arrived. There's more to do and more to do and more to do and deeper and deeper. If you think you've arrived, you're, you're lost. Number 14, only in relationship to God can I define who I am. I might say I'm this person's wife or husband, I'm this person's father or mother, I'm this person's neighbor, I'm this person's friend, I'm this person's employer. All of those are secondary relationships. They come and go, they come and go. You don't define who you are by secondary relationships. There's only one relationship that you can base a s definition of yourself, and that's your, your relationship to the eternal. That's the, that's the relationship that you can bank on. All those others are just, pa are just passing. Better, better for us than just passing. The only definition of whom I am is in relationship to, to, to God, the, 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 the eternal. You know, in, there's a book of Midrashim called Tana Debi Eliyahu. And at the end of the book, there is a discussion about marriage. And it, it says that there are, there, there are four reasons people get married. Three of them are not good, and one of them is good. <laughs> the rabbis say, don't get married for sex. It's important, but don't get married for it. That, that's number one. Number two, don't get married for money. Don't, that, that shouldn't be your motive for getting married. Number three, don't get married to raise your social standing in the community, marrying up. You know, th those are the three terrible reasons to get married. There's only one good reason to get married, and that is to find somebody else who will help you with your primary relationship, which is not them. It's your relationship to God. It's, it's your partner in life who become, that, that secondary relationship that's gonna come and go. That partner is, the, the, what's my job? My job is to help my wife with her primary relationship. Her job is to help me with my primary relationship. I was telling a few people before that I, um, I was uh, critically ill um, a few months ago. I was in the hospital for five weeks and um, I, uh, a good number of people who get what I had were, uh, die from it. Well, here I am. Uh, but but you know, my, my, my wife was the person, among other things, 
who kept reminding me. She, she slept on a chair next to my bed in the hospital every night for five weeks. And she was the one who reminded me of my primary relationship. When I felt, when I felt that loss and I, uh, being lost and so forth, that she's my, it's not an insult to call your wife your secondary relationship. To call your partner the person who helps you with your primary relationship is just about as fine a compliment as you, as you, can, uh, as you can think of. Number 15, what is the sin of knowing? You know, you read in the, in the Torah that we shouldn't eat from the, from the, from the tree of knowledge. And you, know, and, and you react like, what do you mean? I, I thought we're the knowledge people. We send our kids to college. And we're, you know, we're, you know we're, we're, what's so terrible about knowledge? The sin of knowing, I alluded to it before, is the sin of the knowledge becoming the obfuscation rather than the clarifier. You think that the more and more and more you, you know, that the, the clearer life becomes. You know, Thomas Jefferson said that if you don't read the newspaper, you're probably going to be more educated than it, I'm sorry, if you, read, if you don't read the, the, the newspaper, you'll probably know more about what's going on than if you read the newspaper. Right? That thinking that more and more information is the clarifier is the sin of knowing. As Robert Sandals puts it, it's giving the answers to questions that you don't even have. Right? There's no, you, you, know, you learn all kinds of, I, well, I, I never asked that question, but they're, they're heaping on me. Well, Rabbi Sandals says heaps and heaps of unrelated facts. Pyramids upon pyramids of information that don't clarify. On, on the contrary, they obscure. Number, uh, number sixteen. How are we doing for time? Okay. Uh, what? I take my time. Okay. You're going to be in trouble if I, if I do that. But but number sixteen. Yeah, I'm so disappointed. Nobody walked out yet. I mean, you know, I'm not doing that well. I can see. Uh, so no, number sixteen. Some people, you know, there are four ways, let's say you say four ways that we look at the text. The way we remember the four ways is by the Hebrew word pardes, which is etymologically from uh, the root of, of paradise. It means garden or orchard, pardes. And there are four letters that make up pardes. The, the P sound, the R sound, the D sound, and the S sound, pardes. So the P sound stands for pshat. The pshat is, what does it say? Not, nothing, just what does the text say? So you know, there's sometimes on the street when I'll meet somebody and they'll say, oh, you at the, uh, the rabbi's class last night? You know, what, what happened? And I start giving all, and the person says to me, Arthur, I, I, I don't want all, just give me the pshat. Just tell me what he said. The, that's the P, uh, the P of, of pardes. The reish, the R sound of pardes, is the re, it's the remez, the hint. The hint, not what does the text say, but what is the text hinting at? That isn't there explicitly, but it's, it's a hint, called, called the remez. The third of the four is the, the, the D sound, the letter dalit, and that's the, the drush. What's the homiletic? What's the, what's the sermon? What's the lesson we can derive from it? Not what does it say, not what does it hint at, but what does it teach? And the fourth of the four, that S sound, is sowed, the secret. The secret embedded within it. Again, not what it says, clearly, literally, not what it hints at, 
not what the lesson is, but what is the secret that's embedded within it. Those are the basically the four base, general basic approaches to the text. So some people, some of us, were under or are under the mistaken notion that we have the, the five books of Moses and we have the Zohar, let's say. So the Zohar you know, is the, the Kabbalistic text. Right? That's the, the mystical Kabbalistic text. And the five books of Moses is the, 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 uh, the book that we're looking at every day, every week, whatever it is. Some of us have the mistaken notion that the five books of Moses is the Pshat, what does it say? And that the Zohar is the sold, the secret. But in fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's a, because in the Zohar, there's no secrets. Everything is out there. It's all explicit. It talks about everything. In the five books of Moses, it's all hidden. It's all, all hidden within there. The five books of Moses is the book of secrets. The Zohar is the book that gives it all out and, 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 and tells it explicitly. It's a different way of looking at it. Relatedly, number 17, we think often that the Talmud and the books of Kabbalah are, say different things and teach different things, but it's not true. The Talmud and the books of Kabbalah are talking about the same things, but just in different languages. Some of us, we connect with Talmud. And that way of exploring profound ideas speaks to us. Others of us, we like to go to, to the texts that are much more abstract and esoteric. And those become the, those be, that becomes the language that we click into. It isn't that they're talking about two different things. It's the same thing, just in two different languages. Number 18. Rabbi Steinsaltz, I took Rabbi Steinsaltz once to a synagogue um, in Manhattan, a, a modern Orthodox synagogue. And it was Saturday night, Shabbos had ended, and Rabbi Steindeltz comes into the hall to, to give a talk, and he has with him under his arm is a bottle of schnapps, and he's carrying a, uh, a, a pack of, of, of cups, and he's handing out cups, and he's pouring, pouring people schnapps, and he proceeds to give a lecture that evening for about an hour and a half on the benefits of getting drunk. Now, when he said drunk, he didn't mean wildly unruly. He meant just enough to make you a little bit unstable. You have to get a little bit unstable in order to learn. If you're, if you're, if, uh, beg your pardon? Can you learn to be stable? Can you, can, can you learn to be stable? Or? No, you, you said that you, you need to get drunk in order to feel Yeah, well put. Thank you. Thank you. It was worth my asking you because, yes, precisely. So, for example, I flew into Phoenix this, mor the, 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 was it this morning or this afternoon, whatever it was, and what, what, what is the most dangerous part of the, of the flight? It's when you take off and when you land. You know, when you're 30,000 feet in the air, unless somebody shoots you down or there's a bomb, God forbid, as we're reading in the headlines, um, that, that's the safest place to be. It's when you're taking off or landing is when you, it's the most unstable. But in order to fly, you have to go through that instability. That's the only way you can really move is by becoming a little unstable. It's like climbing up a ladder. 
you're on this rung and on this rung and then on this rung and there's a nanosecond between this rung and this rung where you're not on this rung and not on this rung but you're kind of in the middle and you're a little bit unstable but it's only by going through that instability that you're able to climb. So, so the benefits of getting drunk was not permission to get wildly drunk and unruly, but it's to understand the wisdom that it's only when we get a little bit uncomfortable, only when we're a little bit unstable, that we in fact can make some progress. So 17, that's, um, was that 18? Um, so so um, n n number, number 19. God creates everything. Even evil, it says it in the Psalms, that God creates good and God creates evil. God creates everything. So I have a couple of rings that remind me of different things. So this particular ring has an Aramaic expression that's engraved into it. The Aramaic expression is gam zulatova. Gam is also, zu is this, and Latova is for good. It's an idiomatic expression that means that everything is for the best. Now the Talmud uh, expresses it in many ways. The famous story is the story of Rabbi Akiva. The Talmud says that Rabbi Akiva is traveling and he has with him three things. A candle, a rooster, and a donkey. And at the end of the day, he goes into this town and he knocks on the door of the inn and the innkeeper comes out and, and, and Rabbi Akiva says, do you have a place for me to stay tonight? And the innkeeper says, no, we have no place for you. And Rabbi Akiva says, Gamzulatova, this is for the best. He goes to the next door, he knocks on the door, asks him, do you have a place for me for tonight? And the guy says, I have no place for you. And Rabbi Akiva says, Gamzulatova, this is for the best. And he goes down that and nobody is giving him a place to stay. So he realizes he has to go out into the outskirts of town, into the woods, and he makes camp for himself. And he has with him again a candle, a rooster, and a donkey. The Talmud says that in the middle of the night, a wind came and blew out his candle. And Rabbi Akiva said, Gamzulatova, this is for the best. The Talmud says in the middle of the night, an animal came and killed his rooster. Rabbi Akiva said, Gamzulatova, this is for the best. The Talmud says in the middle of the night, an animal came and killed his donkey. Rabbi Akiva said, Gamzulatova, this is for the best. Well, he spends the rest of the night. He goes back into the next morning into the town that had refused him lodging. And he discovers that in the middle of the night, a band of hooligans attacked the town, attacked the town and destroyed property and killed people. And that's how the story ends. The lesson of the story is, is clear. Had Rabbi Akiva been given lodging in the inn, he might have been one of the victims. Had the candle not been blown out, he, but they might have detected him out there in the woods. Had the rooster not been killed, they might have heard him out there in the woods. And had he not been um, the donkey, the donkey been killed once again, he might. So in, in each case, now again, it's just a story, but it's just that's what the Talmud. That's what uh, largely what the Talmud is. We look at these these stories, these, and we break, crack them open, and we try to find the eternal idea that's embedded within. <coughs> Within the, uh, in, within the story. So the message there is that we, we, the sages teach us that we need to integrate into who we are the notion of gamzu latova, that everything in some inexplicable way is for the best. Now there's an important, uh, important thing that I have to add to that. Oh, I irritated at least one person. Okay, great. Oh, I feel so much better. 
you know. Uh, so, but there's, there's a corollary to that notion of gamzulatova. And that is, you never say it to other people. You only say it to yourself. If somebody falls and hurts their knee, I don't look at them and say, karma. Right? If they hurt their knee, my responsibility is to help to relieve their suffering. But if I hurt my own knee, I can do anything I want with my suffering. I don't have to be, I don't have to necessarily be, be comforted by somebody else. That could be something that prompts me in a direction that I might not have gone. That everything in some inexplicable way is for the best. This is what the sages say we need to integrate into who we are. We don't celebrate the bad things. We don't wish them to happen. But we need, the sages teach us, to situate ourselves so that we understand that we don't see the whole picture. Who am I, little Arthur Kurzweil, a speck of almost nothing in this vast, inconceivable universe? How, do I, how would I even have the audacity to think I can understand what's going on? When I was a little boy, my older brother, he wanted to make a, a vegetable garden in the backyard. So he got, he got carrot seeds and he planted them. And my parents had to tell him that when, when you first start to see the green, you don't pull it out. It's, you, know, you have to wait a little while. And he, he got that after a little while. But if you were to plant the carrot seed and dig up that seed in a couple of days, what do you see? You see a rotting seed, this poor, pathetic, rotting seed. But if you leave that seed in the ground and you don't harass it, and you let it rot, what ultimately happens is the vegetables start to grow because we don't see everything. We only see a small piece of what's going on. So that when, you, when bad things happen to good people, you don't celebrate it. You do what you can to relieve the suffering, but you also integrate into who you are the possibility that maybe our vision is limited, maybe there's far more, in fact, there's far more going on than, 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 than meets the eye. I, which, which allows us to integrate into who we are, into who we are, um, that, that notion. So number 20, and then I'm gonna uh, tell you the story, and then we'll see if we wanna talk a few minutes. So the question is asked, what is the Jewish way of holiness? You can go into the New Age bookstores and read books on Buddhism and Hinduism and all kinds of, uh, of, of, of spiritual paths. What's the Jewish way of holiness? And the great Kabbalistic masters teach that what do we do during the day? I know for 10 years I did it. I'm sitting in the base Midrash, in this place in Brooklyn, and basically I'm studying Talmud. The Talmud is 63 volumes of doubt. <laughs> 63 volumes of asking and questioning and doubting and questioning and asking and doubting and questioning. 63 volumes. You know, they say that Eskimos have lots of words for snow, um, and there's a controversy just how many are there. Well, they have more words for snow than I have in New York. I have, you know, drifts and flurries, and I can think of a couple. But it makes sense an Eskimo would have more words for snow than I do. In Jewish life, we don't have m that many words for snow, but we have a lot of words for questions. Did you ever ask the question, where did you get that information? Sure, there's a lot of, where'd you get that information? Well, there's an Aramaic expression. Well, where'd you get that information? Did you ever ask the person, where the hell did you get that information? Slightly different from the first question. Well, there's an Aramaic expression. Where the hell did you get that information? 
Did you ever say to somebody, what are you, a moron? Where the hell did you get that information? <laughs> Slightly different from the, well, it's an Aramaic expression. What are you, a moron? Where the hell did you get that information? We have questions. We, so we questioned 63 volumes. And at a certain point during the day, you hear that sound. And it's the, the gabai, the, the helper in the shul, in the Vesmidrash, who's saying, okay, guys, it's time to pray. And you put away your 63 volumes of doubt, and you pick up your prayer book which is one volume of faith. Faith, 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 faith. Everything is faith. Even if you read a psalm that begins with doubt, it ends with faith. It's one volume of faith. You finish your praying and you set it aside and you go back to your 63 volumes of doubt, questioning and asking and probing and questioning, asking and probing until you hear and you set aside your questions and you go to your one volume of, of, of faith. The sages say that to get stuck in either one of those two, these two places is a grievous error. But going back and forth between the two, that's the Jewish way of holiness. Going back and forth between those two, between the 63 volumes of questioning and that one volume of faith, back and forth, back and forth. So let me tell you the most profound story I ever heard. The story is a story about a young student who was studying Talmud. And one of the 63 sections of the Talmud is called Blessings. It's called Blessings. Did you ever, did you ever read, um, oh, anybody here know who died on November 22nd, 1963, other than John F. Kennedy? On the very same day, the very same day, November 22nd, 1963, there were a bunch of famous people who died. Number one, um, C.S. Lewis died that same day. Number two, Aldous Huxley died the same day. In fact, his wife wrote a book about the last 24 hours of Aldous Huxley's life. It's a very interesting book called um, This Timeless Moment. It's about the fact that Aldous Huxley scribbled on a piece of paper that he asking his wife if she could give him some LSD. And in fact, Aldous Huxley was tripping on LSD when he died of cancer, writhing on the bed. It's one thing that the high school teachers don't tell you. And uh, I'm, I'm not advocating it, but, but that, that's what he did. <coughs> and number three, my favorite, um, Robert Stroud, who was the, the Birdman of Alcatraz. Birdman of Alcatraz uh, died that same day, that same so Aldous Huxley, we mostly know him from his famous book, uh, Brave New World. Right? It's, it's, um, it's about this horrible utopia. Well, the very last book that he wrote before he died was a, a novel called Island. The name of it is Island. It's not the greatest novel you'll ever read, but it's a very interesting novel. And if Brave New World was the horrible utopia, Island is the beautiful utopia. And on the island, this utopian island, the people on the island, they, would, they trained birds, speaking parrots, to fly overhead. And the parrots would say one of two things. They would either say, attention, attention, or they would say, here and now, here and now. Because the people on this island wanted some vehicle to help them to pay attention to the moment, not let life go by. You know, when I go home at night and I want to reward myself, I go and I, I take... The, the most amazing cookie that has ever been created in the history of the world, the Mint Milano. 
The mint Milano. And by the way, put it in your freezer, okay? You forget this lecture, but you're going to thank me for that. <laughs> Frozen mint Milano. You know, but I don't just grab the Milano and pop it down. I grab the Milano and say, wow, a Milano. And then I pop it down. In other words, I make a blessing, a, a blessing of gratitude. We don't have birds in our world in, in Jewish life telling us to pay attention. We have a system of consciousness called blessings. There are blessings for every moment, or every moment of enjoyment and pleasure. There's, the rabbis have offered uh, suggestions of blessings to say, to be, to, to be conscious of what you're doing. So the student is studying brachos, studying the section of the Talmud called blessings. And he sees that in the Talmud, it says that there's a blessing for everything. There's a blessing for seeing a beautiful person. There's a blessing for seeing an unusual looking person. There's a blessing for seeing a shooting star and a blessing for thunder and a blessing for the first time you put clothing, a, a piece of clothing on. And there's blessings for everything. But then the Talmud says that there's a blessing that you say on suffering. And the student doesn't understand it. How could you say a blessing on suffering? So he goes to the Rebbe. In this case, it was the Magid of Mezrich. He was the heir to the Baal Shem Tov. And he goes to the, the Rebbe and he says to the Rebbe, Rebbe, I'm studying brachos. And I see that the rabbis give us blessings on all of the pleasures of life. But then the rabbis say there's a blessing to say on suffering. And I don't understand. What, why, why do we say a blessing on suffering? And the Rebbe said, go and ask Reb Zusha. He'll be able to tell you. So Reb Zusha was an elderly Man, he was very, uh, very ill, and, and he was living in this dilapidated shack. And the, 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 the Hussid goes to Reb Zusha's shack and knocks on the door. And now comes poor old Reb Zusha. And he says to the student, how, how can I help you? The student says, well, I'm studying brachos in the Talmud. And I see that the rabbis give blessings on all the pleasures of life, but then the, 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 the um, rabbis say there's a blessing to say on suffering. And I don't understand. Why do you say a blessing on suffering? So I went to the Rebbe and I asked him, and he told me that you would be able to answer the question. So Reb Zusha, I'm asking you, why do we say a blessing on suffering? And Reb Zusha said, I don't understand why the Rebbe sent you to me. I've never had an opportunity to say that, Rachel. That's the story. I've never had the opportunity to say that blessing. He didn't see his suffering as, uh, as suffering. He saw his suffering as part of the curriculum. It wasn't suffering. He, as the Beatles again, they take a, you take a bad song and make it better. Right? <laughs> a descent for the sake of ascension. That's the most profound story that I've ever heard. Those are 20 ideas that I've embedded into my children's consciousness. I'm really honored to take some time of yours to share them with you, and I thank you very, very much for having me. Thank you so much. So our cutoff time is 8.30, uh, which gives us about 13, 14 minutes for questions. Rabbi Kurzweil will be here after if people want to ask private questions. You're welcome to do this however you want. My humble suggestion would be to take a number of questions at once, maybe, because I think there's a few. Okay. Respond to what you want, if that, if that sounds right to you. Would you be kind enough to take those okay. bunch of questions? Uh, I'm happy to. Yeah, let's start taking a few. And, and did, I, did I miss your replay of number seven? <laughs>
a replay of number seven? Oh, um, I, I, the, the, the story at the end was the, was the coming back to it. So I'm sorry I didn't make that explicit. I'm, I, um, you know, the, the, the Dummies um, publishing, it's, it's really John Wiley and Sons who own the Dummies books. There are hundreds and hundreds of Dummies books and everything. They are the most grueling, I was telling the rabbi this afternoon, the most grueling books to write. They send you a book when you sign the contract, a 50-page book called How to Write a Dummies Book for Dummies. <laughs> they, they send you a template that you connect to a Word document so that if you know the dummies books and the way that the pages are situated, you're actually composing the pages as you write. You, you have to write a chapter a week. You then send your first chapter in, and four editors go through it asking questions and send it back to you while you're writing chapter number two. You send in chapter number two, and you're answering the questions to chapter number one while they're asking questions to chapter number two. And there's 28 chapters to a dummies book, so it was a grueling, and I promised myself after writing the first one that I would never write another one, but they offered me a contract that was nice, so I, I, uh, uh, I, I took that contract. So I, again, promised I'll never do it, until they ask me, and then I might do that again. I'm, 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 I'm hoping that they will. I um, discussed it with them once, and um, they, they have a list, and they only do a cer certain number of topics every season. And the, the, you know their religion books, uh, you know, the, I'm competing with lots of others also, but I, but I hope to. And uh, if you give them a call, maybe you can encourage them a little bit. Okay. I'll give you a percentage. Um, so if God orchestrates everything for everyone, it, it seems like every, no one goes unscathed through I hear you. I, 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 okay. And, and not only that, but it often seems that some of the people who you despise live it up. <laughs> and some of the people who are so precious are the ones who get, you know, the, the tourists after tourists. So, so, you know, so what, what's going on here? Referring back to the notion that we're not a, soul, a body that has a soul, we're a soul that has a body. My soul existed before this body. My soul will exist after this body. So the, the notion is that if you are a terrible person and you get all, so many pleasures in life, God is giving you all of the pleasures in life that you deserve. Because even the worst person does some good. So that terrible person who's done some good, they get rewarded in this life. And then all that's left is the, is the punishment in the world to come. And those of us who have all the problems in this life, all the suffering in this life, even the best person does some things that are sometimes hurtful or inappropriate or insensitive. Those, that suffering that you get in this life is suffering that you deserve for some of the things that you've done, either in this life or in a previous incarnation. And then all that's wiped out. And then what comes in the world to come is just the rewards, because all of the, all of the, so the rabbis say, if you go for 30 days without any problems, you should worry about that. 
Because the problem really indicates that you're cleaning up that stuff. And then, so I was, I was, when I first discovered the book, The 13 Petaled Rose, I was working in Manhattan. And the children were arriving and the, the apartment was too small and I said, look, we need to move someplace else in Brooklyn. I don't care where we move as long as we stay on the F train. <laughs> The F subway train, because at the time, at least, it was the best subway cars. They were air-conditioned in the summer, and they were the, the real nice uh, subway cars. So every evening, drive, going back on the subway from my office to my home, I'm sitting and I'm reading the 13 petal rose. Over and over again, chipping away at phrases and sentences. Now, my first Talmud teacher taught me that it says in the Talmud that you shouldn't travel two cubits with a fellow Jew without talking Torah. Now a cubit is the ancient yardstick from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your finger. So the Talmud says you shouldn't go two of those with a fellow Jew without talking Torah. And on the subway, the reason I wanted to be on the F train really is because it went into all the religious neighborhoods in Brooklyn. You could have a minion on every car. <laughs> you know, it's like Jewish Disney World. You know, and you know, and, and I, I liked it. I, I liked it. So, I'm, I'm on the F train one day going back to Brooklyn, and I'm sitting next to a chassid, and I'm reading the, the, the 30 Bell Rose, and he's reading the New York Post. <laughs> and I'm feeling very good about myself, because I'm reading this great book by Rabbi Steinsaltz, and he's reading the, the rag newspaper. You know, the New York Post, if you don't know it, when you read the headline in the New York Post, something happened, but not what it said that happened. You know, <laughs> it's not what they say. You know, so, but, but you know, the etiquette on the subway is nobody talks to anybody. And I'm thinking, well, the Talmud says I shouldn't go two cubits, and here's this old chassid sitting next to me, and I try to get up the, the courage to, to ask him a question. So I finally did. I pushed myself, and I said to the old chassid, excuse me, you know, he was dressed like the, you know, the, the very traditional guy, the long pants and the beard and the black. And I said, excuse me, and he, he puts the post down, and I showed him the 13 petal rose, and I said to him, have you ever seen this book? And he took pick up the book and he looks at the first couple of pages and he says, you know, I, I don't usually look at books unless they have two haskamas. A haskama I learned from my genealogy research. A haskama is a seal of approval. Somebody wrote a, it's like an introduction. You know, uh, somebody says, you know, kosher book. And the reason why I learned it in genealogy is because usually the haskama has some biographical information. It'll say the author of this book, Rabbi so-and-so, who's the son of Rabbi such-and-such in the town of so-and-so. So, you, so you, get, you get information about the person. So I, when he said, I don't look at books unless they have at least two haskamas, I, I knew what a haskama was. And I thought to my, uh, he said, I don't look at books unless they have at least two haskamas. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, excuse me, but where is the haskama on the New York Post that you're But I didn't tell him that because I didn't, <clears throat> I was trying to make friends, so I, you know, I didn't say that to him. But, but then he surprised me. He surprised me and he said to me, but you know, it doesn't really matter that much. What's the book about? And I showed him the table of contents and I told, I said, here's a chapter called the soul and a chapter called Torah and a chapter called holiness. And I, I said, it's an introduction to Jewish thought. Um, he said, well, you know, I, I, I never, heard, never heard of it. Um, and he then began to talk to me. And we had a conversation as the F train was winding its way back into Brooklyn.
And I told him that I, I grew up in a home that did not offer me a Jewish education. It wasn't until I left my parents' home and, and did some genealogy and learned about the history that I fell in love with, with Judaism. And I was telling the Hasid that, I, that you know, I'm having a difficult time integrating some of these ideas into my mind and into my life and having a difficult time doing all the, the, the things that are being taught in, in, in Jewish books. And I'm, I'm telling him of my stumbling blocks and my problems, and at a certain point, the Hasid looks at me and he says, you know, you're luckier than I am. And I said to him, how can you say that? I'm luckier than you are. I just got finished telling you that I did not grow up with a Jewish education. I'm having all kinds of troubles and problems integrating these ideas um, into my, my life. I had said to him a moment before, can I read something to you from the, from the Verdi Villa Rose and ask you a question? He said, sure. So I read this, to, this is a little passage from the 13th Villa Rose. Rabbi Sandals writes, it has been said that each of the letters of the Torah has some corresponding soul. That is to say, every soul is a letter in the entire Torah, and each soul has its own part to play. The soul that has fulfilled this task, the soul that has done what it has to do in terms of creating or repairing its own part of the world, and, and the soul that has realized its own essence, that soul can wait after death for the perfection of the world as a whole. But not all souls are so privileged. Many souls stray for one reason or another. Sometimes a person does not do all the proper things, and sometimes that soul misuses forces and spoils his portion and spoils the portion of others. In such cases, the soul does not complete its task and may even itself be damaged by contact with the world. It is not managed to complete that portion of reality which only this particular soul can complete. And therefore, after the death of the body, the soul returns and is reincarnated in the body of another person and again must try to complete what it failed to correct or what it injured in the past. I said to the old Hasid, do we believe in this? He said, of course. I said, Jews believe in reincarnation? I never heard of it. Uh, he said, well, you never got a Jewish education, so that's why you never heard of it. <laughs> and he then said to me, you're luckier than I am. And when I said, why am I luckier than you are? He said to me, you know, every Jew is connected to God by a rope, but metaphorically speaking. But he said, you know, sometimes the rope breaks, as in your case, meaning my case. And when the rope breaks, what you have to do is to find the two ends of the rope and tie them back together. And when you tie the two broken ends of the rope together, the rope is shorter than it was before it was broken. He said, you're closer to God than I will ever get to. Right? You're closer to God than I will ever get. Not only is the rope shorter, but when you tie that knot, that rope is also stronger, often stronger. You're closer to God than I will ever get, he said. And I learned two things from him, that cluster that day. Number one, that you shouldn't go two cubits with a fellow Jew <laughs> without talking Torah. And the second thing I learned is that that on the subway that day gave me the metaphor for my life. What am I trying to do? What are we trying to do? I'm trying to find those two ends of the broken rope and somehow or other you know, tie them back together. So that notion of reincarnation, 
which is not, you know, something that the Eastern people, you know, but you know, sage, you, you, do you ever sing Lakodo Di on Friday night? Well, the guy who wrote that, he believed in reincarnation. He wrote about it. You know the code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, like Joseph Caro? He believed in reincarnation. He wrote about reincarnation. This is not some obscure thing that, that, that you find in some, some uh, book on the fringe. It, it's an essential core part of, of Jewish tradition and begins to inform the, the question that, that you asked, that I, that I, that I appreciate that, that you asked. We have two minutes, uh, or, or not? All right, we have one minute. Yeah, let's take one more. So 30 okay. seconds for the question. I'll do 30 seconds for the answer. Thank you. Like Go. asking a real quick question about uh, something as small as how as, to as how to trim your beard. Like that, of course, right? yeah. Rabbi, what do you, as we enter this, this profound period of disruption and tension and worry and terrorism, on the macro level, what can the Jewish people do to gird ourselves or to think or to shield ourselves and to protect ourselves and to elevate ourselves in the madness of the world that we're entering now. You know, I, I, okay, so I, I have 20 seconds, so that'll be easy. Um, you know, one thing that I can say about my relationship to Rabbi Steinsaltz is that over the 30 some odd years that I've known him, he's never, ever, ever told me what to do. Never. He only says one thing, learn more. Learn and learn more and learn more. I once heard somebody ask Rabbi Steinsaltz, Rabbi Steinsaltz, how do you do what you do? You're a traditional Orthodox rabbi if ever there was one, but you go into a Reformed temple and you teach with men and women sitting together and the men are bareheaded. How, how do you do what you do? And Rabbi Steinsaltz said, my teachers always taught me to relate to a person's essence, not to their shell to relate to their essence, not to their shell. I think that's a profound, a profound approach to life. Just learn. You just learn and learn more. Let my people know. Learn and learn and learn. You know, and you know, ask the questions and then have the faith. And ask the question and bounce back and forth between the two. You know, I, at the end of the day, I have to say to myself, it's, I do what I can, but it's not my world. You know, it's, it's Hashem's world. And I have the faith that he knows what he's doing. So thank you very much. Thank you.